Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 and 7 through 14. On one occasion, when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. When he noticed how the guests chose the places of honor, he told them a parable. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. And the host who invited both of you may come and say to you, give this person your place. And then, in disgrace, you would start to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down at the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. He said also to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors in case they may invite you in return and you would be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words, and we ask that your spirit would be with us this morning to transform us in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. There are two parts to this story today. Both are instructions on how to live. Both tie into the major theme of Luke's gospel, that the kingdom of God is going to be a reversal of the status quo. So before we get to the instructions themselves, it will be helpful for us to review what has happened so far in the gospel of Luke, so that we can better understand the whole scope of what Jesus is saying to this group assembled for dinner. Many of us are probably familiar with the opening of Luke because it tells the most fleshed out version of the Christmas story. And in Luke's telling, the promise of a social inversion is introduced before Jesus is even born into the world. When Mary visits her cousin Elizabeth, she sings a song of praise for the Christ child in her womb. Mary proclaims, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Mary is thus the first person in this gospel to declare the agenda of the Christ child. As the Christ bearer, she is the first to know and to speak into being the social inversion of the kingdom. Now, just a few chapters later, Jesus begins his public ministry in dramatic fashion. He goes to his hometown synagogue, opens the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, 
and reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then sits back down and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus went to his hometown, told people, the poor are going to be favored, prisoners and slaves are going to be set free, the sick are going to be healed, and any claims to property are going to be undone. And I'm going to be the one to do it. Amazingly, the hometown crowd seems to be on board with such bold declarations until Jesus tells them that they weren't the ones that he came to set free, at which point they chase him out of town. So now here we are in the middle of Jesus's ministry. He's been doing exactly what he said he was going to do. He's been healing the sick. He's been warning the wealthy about the dangers of wealth for their salvation. He's been making a name for himself as someone who clashes with the temple authorities, as well as other reformers like the Pharisees. And yet here he is, sitting down to dinner with a leader of the Pharisees for the Sabbath meal. And ever the rabble-rouser, Jesus walks into the home of his host and starts lecturing the other guests about their behavior. And what does he say to them? The same thing that he's always been saying. If you think that you're important, then you're going to be surprised and embarrassed when your host has other opinions. As Mary said, he's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the powerful from their thrones. Instead, says Jesus, it's better to assume that we're not honored, to humble ourselves. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we should tear ourselves down. There's a difference between humility and self-denigration. But as he's told his disciples previously, we should look for the log in our own eye before pointing out the speck in someone else's eye. For example, when I was working at the seminary, we had a scholar come to do a couple lectures and lead some workshops. They've made a name for themselves in the world of theology by writing about liberation from oppression, about lifting up the voices of the marginalized. But in person, they relished in the opportunity to belittle the student workers and staff that interacted with them. In order to lift themselves up, they pushed others down. This is not the way that Jesus is calling us to behave. What Jesus is saying to these dinner guests goes into the idea that we call servant leadership. Jesus is inviting us into the same kind of life as the one that he modeled. He didn't come to bring salvation as a king sitting on a throne or at the head of an angelic army. He humbled himself and offered a new vision of the world from the bottom up. And so he says to those around him, let go of your ego and your pride, let go of your notions of honor and status, place yourself where no one wants to be, and God will notice. 
The instructions that Jesus provides to those at this dinner are deeply countercultural. The world in our day relies just as much on honor and status as it did in the time of Christ. We're all aware of the reality that it's often not what you know, but rather who you know that matters. The cultural norm is still that if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But we don't do what's right only when it's going to benefit us, or only when we'll see some sort of kickback. We do what is right even when it's unpopular, even when we don't stand anything to gain in worldly terms, even when doing so means that we actually lose out in the eyes of the world. Let me give you another example. Before I went to seminary, I was participating in a Latin study at my local church. We were reading a book called Public Jesus by Tim Suttle. And one week, the conversation turned to why we do the ministries that we do. There was some disagreement as one of the members of the study group said something like, well, we provide meals because people are hungry and so that they will come to church eventually. But what Jesus is saying here is that we feed people because they're hungry, period, end of story. It doesn't matter whether they ever pay us back by coming to church or giving us a donation or anything else. We just do what is right because it is right. And let's be real, it doesn't matter how noble our ulterior motives might be. People are smart enough to figure them out. People know when we do the right thing because we think we stand to gain something from it, compared to when we do the right thing simply for the sake of it being the right thing. And if we talk the talk, but don't walk the walk, like that scholar that came to our campus, then people won't trust what we're saying. We're blessed to hear these words from Christ on a Sunday that we're also celebrating the Eucharist. This is perhaps the moment in our communal life that we come closest to practicing the table manners that Jesus teaches. There is no one who occupies a place of honor above one another when we gather around Christ's table. It doesn't matter what your job or your education, your race, your gender, or any other worldly label. When we gather at Christ's table, we are all welcomed as beloved children of God. What's more, we come together as those who are unable to pay the grace that we are about to receive. The grace that we receive is given freely to us, no matter how unworthy we may feel sometimes. There are a number of ways to describe the communion table, but one of my favorite images is that we are all beggars inviting other beggars to come to the feast. The feast isn't ours to control because it belongs to the one who is greater than all. So how else can one respond to the generosity of grace other than with humility? How else can we respond other than to run out and share the love that we've been shown? So hear these instructions of Christ as the invitation that they are. Jesus is offering us a chance to live as he did, to set aside what the world thinks of us, to experience life in the kingdom now, to be able to do what is right without fear of the consequences, 
And it begins when we embrace humility as a gift of the Spirit, when we can see the log in our own eye and know that God's grace is still working on us and still moving us closer to perfect love. Amen. Would you please pray with me once again? Grace-filled God, we thank you for your unending love. Free us from feelings of self-importance. Free us from hurt egos. Free us to be who you want us to be. Help us to do what is right simply because it is the right thing to do. Make us instruments of your peace, joy, and love. Amen.